from Kurtco Media. Coming up on Wines That Matter. This was the fire year, but this came in before the fires. So this was one of the few things that we have from 2020. It's quite spectacular. I think when you taste it, you see the wine is clean and crisp, has a little bit of honey extract. This is family. This is what happens when family gets involved. This is mom's wine. Hi, welcome to Wines That Matter Napa Valley. I'm Kelly White. I'm Sarah Bray. And we run the wine center in the beautiful Meadowood Napa Valley. During the course of this series, we will be interviewing leading figures in the Napa Valley wine community, the people behind the wines that matter, wines that convey a sense of the place from which they come. For each episode, we have asked our guests to share with us a wine or wines that matter to them, wines that inspire them or represent a pivotal moment in their career, wines that keep them going or that best represent their vision. This isn't education, it's a conversation. We hope that you will come visit us in Napa Valley, but if you can't, we hope that this podcast brings alive the spirit of this special place, its people, and its wines. We're really excited to have Cyril Chapelet here today with us. Thank you for joining us, Cyril. I'm delighted to be here. There's no question about it. You were how old when you moved up here? I was 10. And so what did you think as a 10-year-old changing your whole life coming up here? What was your first impression of Napa Valley? You know, I think the biggest thing when I look back on it and try to remember back to what was I thinking in those days, I didn't have any friends. My mother did a great disservice to us all without ever knowing it. She was very fashion oriented. So we had page boy haircuts. <laughs> the city of St. Helena had never seen a page boy haircut. They're, the barbers did buzz cuts and you were, it's a farming community. We weren't necessarily accepted easily. City people were not accepted by country folks. That's still the way it is, by the way. There is a mistrust of people from the city that is kind of interesting. And people who in the farm communities trust farmers and farm kids more than they do people come from someplace they don't know and they don't understand. So there was that was a bit of a challenge as we were kids coming here into to school and coming into fifth grade here as I went from fourth grade in Los Angeles to fifth grade here. The other part of it, we built some really good friends fairly quickly once that start once we broke through that and once we changed our page boy haircuts to something else and became a little more normal for the rest of the kids. I didn't have a mustache in those days. You should bring back the page boy. I'm looking at you and I'm seeing it. It was right across here. Basically stick a bowl on your head and just cut all the way around it. So the other challenge was we were 22 miles away from anything. One thing is the real estate people kept telling my dad, nobody wants to live way out here. This is why you're getting kind of a deal on this place because nobody wants to live out here. People want to live in town and live close. Well, the town for, the, for us was St. Helena. The town for St. Helena was a fairly vibrant town at that time. There were nine hardware stores in St. Helena. Wow. And those nine hardware stores thrived. They had a robust business. There was one that was kind of a feed store that had some tack and stuff there. There were a couple other ones who specialized more in plumbing parts and other parts. The only one left is Steve's Hardware. There was a place called Chroma and there were a bunch of other hardware stores. And that gives you an idea of what that community, it was really a farming community. How did your dad find that piece of land? So the piece of land over there, which people thought was to hell and gone when my father started looking, but my dad was a serial entrepreneur. I mean, that was really what he was. He was a businessman and he looked at this from a business practical level of where do you do a wine business that makes sense? And so first thing he did is went and researched 
as many of the old guard and people who had been around for a while and talked to them a little bit about what would be interesting in the Napa Valley. There was no other spot in the mid to late 60s that was even considered high quality wines besides the Napa Valley. You have Joe Heights, you have some of the wines from Beringer that were made, some of the wines from BV that were being made there that were really the remarkable wines. But Paso Robles wasn't there. Nobody was making wine in Paso Robles. Sonoma was more bulk wine. They were making more volume wines. There was really no other place to go. So if you really wanted to make wines that were the wines that were in his cellar, which were first growths and great French wines, it had to be the Napa Valley. So that brought it down from all of California, not going to France, to very specific. Then you know, he talked to the Sebastianis. He talked to Robert Mondavi. He, and the one person he kind of resonated with was Andrei Chelichev. And Andre was very giving of his time and was very thoughtful, but realized that at that time, there were 31 operating wineries in the Napa Valley total. Virtually every one of those was a pre-prohibition winery that they had just reenacted a prohibition number, a pre-prohibition number, and brought their business back and, and recreated that winery. So a new person coming into the valley willing to make a brand new winery and get a new bonded winery number was like an anomaly. There wasn't a lot of competition to for land or anything else. You just go to real estate brokers, ask them what they have. They give you a list of all the properties that might be available. There were no barriers to entry economically in those times. So he got to start to get to know Andre a bit. And Andre, he'd be up here every few weeks looking at properties. And, and Andre at one time said to my dad, hey, why don't you come back this afternoon and try some wines. I want to really see where your palate is and what things are really interesting to you. So my dad came back the next day and Andre had four or five glasses of wine in front of him and said, try these wines. Left my dad to his own. So I'll be back in a half an hour or so. And I want to know which of the wines you like the best. So dad went through, tasted the different wines. He pushed two of them away from him and had the other ones closer to him, whatever. And he had he had chosen which ones he liked the most. So Andre comes back in. They start talking about it, the wines. And he said, this is really interesting because what I did is I went through our different barrels of wines that were in process and just about to be blended. And I separated them based upon the areas in the Napa Valley that those grapes had come from. And I can tell you that the wines you chose, if I could get all my grapes from those areas, I'd make much, much better wines. And he said, and the one specific thing about it is the two that you chose were both hillside vineyards. Right. And those hillside vineyards is really, if, if that's really what your palate is and what your interest is, I can understand it. But you need to stop looking at all these valley floor vineyards and go try to figure out what properties became available. So what year did this search start? Mid-60s, right? Yeah, it's about 65. So I think for the listener at home, you know, a real landmark moment in Napa Valley's history was 1966 opening of the Robert Mondavi Winery, which... Other brands like Heights got started before that moment, but that was the first new construction. And so that's sort of the moment people point to as the rebirth of modern Napa Valley. So this search predates that moment, which I think makes it really kind of extra visionary and unique. You know, the process of finding Pritchard Hill and that piece of property was really started from that conversation that he'd had with Andre. And then then he started looking, he looked at Mayakamas, he looked at a number of other hillside vineyards. But in order to have enough vineyard and be able to have kind of an interesting, beautiful situation, he had one other major barrier that you know what that is, was how do he convince my mother to move <laughs> up here? Because she was leaving 
Beverly Hills, Malibu, this wonderful idyllic lifestyle that they had down there to go follow her husband's dream. And it better be pretty as well. Yeah. And so he drove up to Pritchard Hill because that piece of property was available. A guy named J.E. Harton had, had developed the vineyards there. And that'll speak to one of the first wines. Who would plant Chenin Blanc in right. the hillside? So the real key was once he looked at properties, then it was convincing mom. So those two things happened. But the real catalyst for that piece of property was when Andre saw where it was, what it was facing, everything else, he goes, you know what? This could be incredible. I've never gotten any grapes off of that property. Those vineyards had just been planted in 63. So they just been planted a couple of years before this. By 67, my dad was then 34 years old. So my dad was about 32 years old when he was making these decisions. By the time he was 34, they had purchased Pritchard Hill. And they had bought the piece of property that the Pritchards had initially purchased back in 1863. For someone who has not been to the property, can you situate us a little bit? You know, you say it's stunningly beautiful. What are you looking at? What is the thing that convinced your mother that it'd be fine to move up there with a small brood of children? You know, what is it that makes the site special? I could spend the next three hours explaining how beautiful, what a remarkable place Pritchard Hill or what our views are from there. Three minutes on the property is worth whatever I could say in the next three hours. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for me to describe the immense beauty and the overall vistas and views. We look out across the valley towards St. Helena. We can see Mount St. Helena in the distance all the way on the other side of Calistoga. We have a 180-degree view of of the Napa Valley from a very high vista. So the, the absolutely stunning splendor of the property and, and of, of the valley is available right there. And so our vineyards are very steep hillside vineyards, and they're, they're pretty in their own. But around it is very, very heavily wooded areas. So we're really focused with lots and lots of oak trees, lots of madrone trees, lots of manzanita. It's just, it's a spectacularly beautiful property. So there's a lot of things which actually attest to why dad made the right decision on Pritchard Hill in that area and making wines from it. Well, and you came out of the gate swinging. I mean, the 69 Chapelet is still regarded as one of the finest wines to come out of Napa. And I know you're operating still at a very high level of quality. You're probably tired of hearing about the 69 all the time, but that was such an early vintage for you. That must have been extraordinary. So that was our second vintage that we had made. And did you see what the price that they're selling a bottle of that for right now, by the way? Um, what? Uh, let me guess. Probably last time I sold it, which was seven, eight years ago, it was $3,000. So I would imagine it's five figures now. 32000 Oh. <laughs> at the same place. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. No, there's no question. Our Cabernets have been remarkable from the from the get-go. I believe that our wines are even better currently, honestly, and we've continued to be more and more cutting edge. I guess one of the questions that come about is that, well, why aren't you selling your wine for four times the price like some of the other wineries in the Valley are? Well, we made a bunch of wine. We were making more wine. It went through distribution, went through a system of the three-tier system. The wine has to be a certain quality. There's no question about it. But people buy wines for a lot of different reasons. And the emotional connection that they have with the property, the people, the why they do the, the stuff may be more important than the actual wine, as long as the wine is at a quality that's the level that, that they accept. 
Let's lean into that a little bit because we asked you specifically to bring wines that matter to you, which is the theme of this podcast, like wines that inspire you, that make you feel connected to what you're doing. So let's tell us what is this wine that we're drinking now and why did you select it when asked to choose something that mattered? Okay, so this wine right here in this interesting bottle, which is almost like a Riesling bottle, but it's a dead leaf green color, is what our Chenin Blanc is in. And when we first bought the property, there was about 25 acres of Chenin Blanc planted to Pritchard Hill in the terraces, in the toughest part of the property to, to plant. And the rockiest part of the property has some Chenin Blanc there. We had a Englishman who was our winemaker, had been trained in France, had a lot of experience in making wines from all over, who said, you don't tear your grapes out or your vineyards out during the early part of the summer, you tear them out after harvest because you want to make sure you always get that harvest out of them. And so see, let's just keep those. So we kept those, which was not the plan originally. And turned out we were able to make a really, really beautiful Chenin Blanc. And we had this gigantic following of restaurants and retailers who loved this wine and did really, really well with it. So pretty much every bistro in California or any place else had to have our Chenin Blanc. It was just kind of an automatic have to have. It's exciting because it's it's one of those historic overlooked grapes in the in the history of California. And you from the get-go always said it's a Chenin Blanc, but it's always been sort of a marquee wine for you. Well, that's interesting. And it's interesting that you bring that up because there was a period of time when it was still tough to move a Chenin Blanc outside of a certain price level. There was no way to break that 7 or $8 barrier for Chenin Blanc. What we were able to do is take Chenin Blanc, do a little more barrel storage on it, put a little more of barrel aging on it, and we call it Old Vine Cuvée. Call it a different name. It didn't say anything about Chenin Blanc on it. And we were able to raise the price to $12. When was this? Years ago in the, in the 80s. Okay. And we made lots of Old Vine Cuvée. And it was a standard. The East Coasters loved it with their lobster. It was a little bit richer, but it had some of the acidity, had some excitement. But even the very sophisticated wine person didn't really take it as Chenin Blanc because they didn't really believe that Chenin Blanc could be that way. And only somebody who really understood some of the Chenin Blancs from Loire Valley would really play that game and, and understand what that it really was a Chenin Blanc. But we could make a lot more money and make it work a lot better in the marketplace by not calling it Chenin Blanc. So push and pull for all those years. One vintage, we made five different wines from Chenin Blanc grapes. So starting at the driest level, we made the Old Vine Cuvée. We made a Chenin Blanc. We made a Demi-Sec mm-hmm. Chenin Blanc. We made a Moileu and we made a Liquoreau. Wow. So... All those were derivatives of Chenin Blanc. The last three had a little bit of botrytis. The, the Demi-Sec had a tiny bit of botrytis. The Moileu and the Licoreau had a high percentage of botrytis. The Licoreau came in at 52% sugar. The Moileu came in at 38 or 39% sugar. And they were remarkable. They were about as Saturnish as you could get. They, that ripe peach, dried pear, dried apricot flavor were so intense with a little bit of that honey extract in it. It was just remarkable wine for those dessert wines. So 
we've had a great history. We probably understand Shannon Blanc at a level that pretty much nobody else does in California. We really get it. We kind of be able to play with it. The one thing we didn't really understand was how much it was really costing us to make the Shannon Blanc because we really didn't do our costing based upon each wine covering its own stuff. We basically did the end of the year. Do we, were we still in business? And if we're still in business, <laughs> something must be working. And, but then we, as we started accounting for it, we realized that every case of Chenin Blanc, well, every bottle of Chenin Blanc we were selling for four or $5 less than what it was costing us to make it. Oh, wow. So that happened, had happened for years. So in 2004, I finally convinced the family and everybody else that this just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Pull the rest of the Chenin Blanc out, get rid of it, put Cabernet in. In those days, I think the Chenin Blanc, the highest Chenin Blanc that was being sold in the Napa Valley was selling for about $800 a ton. At the same time, Cabernet was selling for $5,000 a ton. Right, right, right. So just equate that right there. If it was just on general grape prices, it didn't make sense to make this wine. So 2004, we stopped making Chenin Blanc. Not entirely, though. Well, we did. We completely stopped making it. By 2007, my dad came in the office after having talked with my mom. And she, he said, boys, I've heard enough of your mother being upset about this. And one way or another, you're going to find some place to put in Chenin Blanc. You're going to plant <laughs> some Chenin Blanc. So in 2007, we planted a three and a half acre block right behind the winery in the richest soil we had, which was really the right place for it anyway. And our, we went to Dave Perry, our vineyard manager, and said, hey, Dave, <laughs> we have an edict. We have to do this. We have to get this. He said, Chenin Blanc. He said, well, that, that's the place to do it. So- so we tilled it up, planted Chenin Blanc there, and then we said, okay, mom, this is your project. And we knew we could make the quality even better. So then mom designed, the, put, got the bottle inside of that, designed the label. We said, no, no, you can't put Chenin Blanc. This is your wine. So it says Molly Shapley. It does not say Chenin Blanc on the front. On the back, it does talk about Chenin Blanc. And it's, this is the 2020. This was the fire year, but this came in before the fires. So this was one of the few things that we have from 2020. It's quite spectacular. I think when you taste it, you see the wine is clean and crisp, has a little bit of honey extract. This is family. This is what happens when family gets involved. This is mom's wine. So we'll continue doing that as long as mom wants us to do it and probably forever because we have a gigantic following of this. Well, I I love that this is a reflection of how strong a character your mom is. So we've kind of heard that first she had to be convinced to come up. And then, of course, you know, she's had her fingers in so many of the projects. And one of the things that really struck me when I first visited your property was just how stunningly beautiful and different your winery was. One of the things that I think is so spectacular and unique about the property is the actual physical winery. And could you give us a little bit of the background of that story of of how that came to be? I know there's a a very artistic side to both what your mom brings to the table and her vision for things and what influence did that have? And So if you think back to 1965, 6, 7, 8, as we're moving up here and, and get up here, it was the heyday of the great 60s California artists. And my mother was incredibly involved with the art movement in, in Santa Monica and in Southern California. And she was an art major at Scripps, and she had a lot of the budding artists were good friends. So when we first moved up here, it wasn't uncommon to see people drive up in their Volkswagen vans 
or ride their motorcycles up here. And they were all there. They were coming up to visit their friends in the mountains and to see what they were doing. All very cool, all really neat. But the conversation always got around to, well, what do we build for a winery? How do we make something that's really cool? And my parents had already kind of fallen in love with this, with the mountains and the area there. And and they really wanted to have something that was going to fit in and fit in in a way that didn't detract or take away from the remarkableness of the property or anything else. So they didn't want to have a building that stood for, that's why people came here. It was really good. How do we make a discrete building that works? They also didn't understand and we didn't have the capacity or understanding of what could happen with caves in those days. Because I can tell you now, if they had done it from ground zero, we would have done tons of caves. We would have done all kinds of things differently. So the conversation was, well, what do we build? How do we, how do we do something? And a friend of theirs named Ed Moses, who was a pretty remarkable Southern California artist, and Jeffrey Lindsay and a couple other friends were all there for dinner one night. And somebody came up with, you know, this may be kind of crazy, but a pyramid would work pretty cool. You know, it would kind of emulate all these mountains around here. And it would, it, that would be pretty cool. So they started making little models of it and doing sketches of it, what that would look like. And then the person who really made it into a biz, uh, to a building in a, in a structure that worked for us was a man named Dick Keith, who was a structural engineer over in Santa Rosa. And he had never built a winery before. He'd never built any winery buildings. But think about it. There was Robert Mondavi and ourselves. We were starting to build our winery at the same time Robert Mondavi was building his winery. He was just several months ahead of us. And so 67 was when we started building our winery. He had just literally opened his winery in 67 was his first actual harvest at the winery. He bought the property before, a little before that, but it wasn't anybody else who was the expert in building wineries. This guy went on to build another 160 wineries around the world all over the place. He stayed a very, very close friend of our, of our families until he passed away a few years ago. Well, and I think that it's really interesting that you say that the vision was to not make a winery as a destination or have it completely blend in because I think it is one of the most unique and stunningly beautiful winery facilities that I think I've personally ever been to around the world. And it's almost cathedral-like when you walk in, this kind of temple of winemaking that lets the light in in such a beautiful way. It feels like a really calm, beautiful space in which to make wine. Is it functional? <laughs> so that's, that's, a gr- that's, that's a really good question. I think, and I think it's, it's a very real question. We never expected to see guests. Oh, really? We never expected to see anybody else who would see that building. It was built for my parents and winemaking specifically. And the time it was built, it was the most state-of-the-art winery that had been built. Of course, there hadn't been a lot of other wineries built. Robert Mondavi was building his. We used all the same stratus, the structure that they built their their Cliff May building yeah. out of, you know. And so we had some all the same technology. They just chose to look at it. There is this more of a California mission-style building of that. So stylistically, there was no similarity. But as far as wine quality and space to be able to make great wine, lots of floor space, lots of place to be able to have barrels. We were expecting to store all of our case goods there. We literally made it as a 5,000 case winery. So let's step back a little bit. There was no WDO, winery definition ordinance. So we had a building permit. We did never have to meet any of the qualifications and structures that were there. And that's a whole nother bit of conversation. But now the regulations that you'd have to go through to build a winery are so incredibly ridiculous and and really out of balance with with the rest of the world and what has to happen here in the Napa Valley. And it's just 
overbearing and really challenging. But at that time, that wasn't the case. So they could build whatever they really wanted to. It was, and it has been a remarkable place from a human side to work in and from a winemaking side to be able to make wine in. The human side is what you feel when you walk in The energy is phenomenal. I mean, the energy of being in that building is absolutely stunning. You know, somebody asked me a few days ago, what was it like growing up here? I said, well, we used to ride our skateboards with ceramic wheels in here, and they were really loud and noisy, and we'd finally get kicked out because our skateboards were too loud. (laughs) But, um, you know, it grew to the point that we were making 45,000, 50,000 cases in that building from a building that was designed to make 5,000 cases. Right. Wow. And at that point, we were bursting at the seams. We really needed to do something else. We were starting to store wine in other buildings, other places around the valley. And then we built the another incredibly state-of-the-art building that is right next to it. But that is dug down. It's mostly underground. So between the two buildings, we are now back at a level that we can create wines that are even more incredible than the wines could make in the, in the pyramid building. We'll be right back with Cyril Chapelet. If you love great food and you love travel, you have got to check out the brand new MasterChef's miniseries of Travel That Matters. From Michelin-starred restaurants in Provence to strip mall Szechuan restaurants in LA and mole in the Mercados of Oaxaca, no one knows the top culinary destinations and secret spots like the world's best chefs. Yes, chef. Eat your way around the world with Top Chef alum Gregory Gourdet. I just love big, bold, spicy, dynamic food, and the food of Thailand has that all for me. Travel through the mountain towns of Italy with Chop Judge Amanda Freitag. Yes, it's all under the umbrella of Italy, but it's so different everywhere you go. Crisscross the globe with Iron Chef Marcus Samuelson. It would remind me of being in Sweden, but I was in awe. I was hooked. I was like, this is going to be a major part of my life. Hit the follow button and pack your appetite because the Travel That Matters MasterChef series is taking off soon. Welcome back to Wines That Matter with Cyril Chapelet. Now that the two of you have had your whistle wetted, this is a unique wine, and I brought these wines both for a purpose. One was the history of Chenin Blanc and kind of bring my mother into it, but the other was this wine, and this is really an ode to dad. This is the 2016. I very specifically did not bring the 69 for a number of reasons, because that's just, that's too easy. No, it's too easy. I mean, Parker has claimed it's the finest wine that's probably ever been made in California, ever, of any wine that's ever been made, and he stated that numerous times. He has also been one of the largest buyers of that wine over the years. He always has three or four cases of it, and it continues to have that now. We've, we've evolved. We've continued moving on. The reason why I chose this vintage was that the 2016 Pritchard Hill Cabernet, and the Pritchard Hill Ca- Cabernet is really the pinnacle of the wines that we can make now. It is 100% from the estate, from the property. It is certain blocks, not always the same. It always changes. Everything is done by, by blending. But all parts of this blend come from our property. But the 2016 was the year that my father passed away. When he passed, and it was within the hours of him actually passing, one of the things he said to us was, there are 100-point wines here on this property, and you will get those in the future. I fully believe it. I fully understand it. The best is yet to come. He was still looking at the excitement and enthusiasm of 
of where things were going and really believed that we could continue doing even better. Well, that it turned out a couple years later when the wine was released, because that was the harvest year that he would passed away in. When the wine was released, that this wine did get 100 points. Oh, that's amazing. So kind of a great ode to dad and what he, what he, what his vision was. And, you know, my father invested every dime that he had from every single business that he'd had and any piece of real estate that he'd had in order to keep this business going and to be able to make it work for the next generations. It's kind of one of the reasons I don't really feel it's right or fair for any of us to capitalize financially on the value of this business in selling it. And I think that's wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be fair. He gave up everything to have it. I've spent my life being generated to drive it, and I will continue trying to do that. I, I do want to take a moment talking about what you're doing on that property beyond just making wine, because we were talking before jumping on this this podcast about the work that you've done in the land management and being really ahead of the curve in terms of of kind of stewardship of the land, both in just general context, but also with the droughts that we've been having, the fires that we've been having. So how how is it that you are are, are framing your your kind of management of the property? The context that you're talking about is very real and is is really a big challenge. Um, the 2020 vintage where we had the most massive wildfires, the most damage that we've ever seen in the Napa Valley was devastating. The real devastation comes from the amount of smoke damage. The smoke damage comes from the woods and the forest burning up, not necessarily from, and the vineyards don't burn basically. They're, they're, they're well protected. doesn't mean they don't get scorched on the outside. doesn't mean they don't have some damage, but the most frustrating, the most expensive part of the 2000 fires was really the smoke damage that happened. They claim that it really cost the Napa Valley something in the neighborhood of $20 billion. That's real value of product wow. that wasn't made. That was real value of product that was destroyed. That's what it was. There was only about $3.8 billion worth of insurable risk that actually got covered by insurance companies. Wow. At this point, we don't have the ability to really even get insurance at a reasonable rate at all. And so we have to look at how do we protect our lands and our and our properties in every way we can. So I believe I'm a good example of what it takes to do that. And it's really, how do we get stuff done and not wait for somebody to come and do it for you? How do we bring goats in and have them eating all the brush, eating the, the understory so that there aren't ladder fuels? How do we bring teams of guys in to clean up the, the woods and the forest along the sides of the road so we can make the access? That's just the beginning. The access points are just getting people in and out for safety purposes or emergency services or whatever else. The real point is all the woods, all the forests have to get cleaned up. The best example I can give give you, and I just gave it to this big group that we had in this last week, was we have to start looking at the world of the, the wooey, the areas that are outside of the cities and the towns in a very different way as the most important public, whereas, where, regardless of who they're owned by, whether they're owned by the city, the county, privately owned, but if they all start taking better care of their lands and really cleaning them up and make them look more park-like, and if you go to, greatest example, go to Spain, go to Austria, go to any of their woods, they are all cleaned up. They've been doing this for seven, 800 years, cleaning up all their woods and forests. The reason is those resources are so valuable for them. They know what happens when a fire happens. It wipes them all out. 
Whereas if you've got the woods already clean, then we just have a low burning fire that burns underneath them. So taking care of the land and the land that takes care of us is so critically important. And so as a plea to anybody who is willing to listen, you know, help yourself and then help your neighbor. And if you can do that and your neighbor is safer, you're safer. If you're safer, your neighbor's safer. It's an ongoing task that we have to deal with. I'm on the Firewise Foundation. I've got my own Firewise Council for our area and for all of our neighbors. Our neighbors are incredibly resilient. They're able to work together in a, po- in a really positive way. When push comes to shove, I was able to borrow bulldozers from two other neighbors and use a couple of our own to cut a three and a half mile fire break just to protect ourselves. But by us doing that, that protected every other neighbor that would have when Cal Fire came back in three days later, they said, if they hadn't done this, all of you would have had fire at your doorstep and we're not sure we had any resources to cover it. So I think that that's kind of my take on this stuff. How can we continue to be better? And, you know, Mother Nature is incredibly challenging, but she's also incredibly giving too. And if we take care of her and take care of those those properties, we'll all be better. Well, I mean, it's like you said, I mean, we think about, institutions as sort of monolithic, even down to our service providers. And, you know, during those fires, Cal Fire was very overwhelmed. I have a friend with a brother who works for Cal Fire. He worked 48 days in a row, mm-hmm. you know, with very little sleep. Like the, the resources were really depleted in a fire event of that size. And the amount of firefighters you met who weren't even from here coming in yeah. for that same reason. So what you can do as, a, as an owner makes a, a huge difference. We are sitting right now in a building that pretty much by chance is still here because all the rest of Meadowood, not all of it, but a big chunk of it, the fire, the winds basically wiped it out. And you see the amount of rebuilding that's having to happen. happen. Our hope is that by doing the right amount of work that we're doing in all of these areas and by really bringing the resources to bear, that all these properties will be more safe. The one thing we can guarantee is that, and I think you stated it really clearly, Cal Fire and those structures and our local volunteer fire departments, when it comes down to a big fire and a wind-driven event, their objective is to protect lives, not structures. They will do what they can for structures, but they will be going to areas where there are civilian populations that are threatened. As they should, yeah. But they're not going to go protect other assets other buildings and other things when those firestorms happen. If there's if there's nothing else happening, then they'll come here. But the fact is, there's not enough of them. So your point was well taken. They're bringing these people from all over the state. It's how Cal Fire works. They bring people from fire departments in Riverside and in San Bernardino, all over the country to come here to help us when these things happen. But as you saw in 2020, if you were here, it overwhelmed them. They could not deal with it. The fire that burned that we burned or burned back to the back part of our ranch, burned from there 24 miles all the way to Winters. Every bit of that got scorched. They had to protect the town of Winters. They had to protect the town of Vacaville. They weren't protecting those 150 homes that were in between. Each of those people were on their own. So it's it's how do we help this to make it, to make ourselves more resilient and safer around the board. And then I was, the Vintners have now a fire committee structure and a, resiliency task force that we have the vintners are bringing in other fire experts to kind of help people to deal with this stuff the amount of money that takes to do this is going to be extensive so 
I did not mean, mean this to become a fire, <laughs> fire workshop. This is a podcast um, about fire prevention and safety. But it's all parts of, of, of where we live. Will you tell us a little bit more about this 2016 Pritchard Hill? Kelly knows these wines backwards and forwards. She's written a Bible about them. She absolutely understands what we're talking about. But for the rest of the people out there who might not know so much about the wines that we produce, especially the Pritchard Hill Cabernet, our objective is, and the safe way is using a term that we use, which is called terroir. And terroir is basically the French way of saying everything there is to know about why a grape tastes the way that it is from the soil, from the conditions, the area that it was grown, which is different than that same exact vine planted in another spot. But the terroir is really about Pritchard Hill and the intensity that we get from Pritchard Hill and the structure we get is elegant, but really robust, very intense. And I'm not going to use wine speak terms because that's what Kelly can do all day long, but and that's what our sommeliers can do. But in reality, it is rich. It's complex. The other part that I think is really beautiful about this wine specifically, and by having a little extra age on it makes a big difference, is that the finish is quite round and the tannins are very long. They're kind of a lingering tannin. They're not, they're not a harsh, bitey tannin. And what I mean by that, and anybody who doesn't understand what this is, I recommend that they go and they buy a persimmon that is green and they bite into a persimmon. The squeakiness on your teeth is so unbelievable. That is pure tannin. Persimmon is the best example of something that really proves a tannin. This is the opposite of that. This is basically saying those tannins now are long. Tannins are an important part of making great wines. The skins from our grapes and the color of our wines are really rich and intense, and that's what gives this color and the, the structure here. And then when tasting it, I really get that same, I get a robustness. And it's really what Chapel is, is about, and our Pritchard Hill is, is an example of kind of the best of the best of that. I'll also tell you that if you had the benefit of hanging on to this for another 25 years, I think that you would be blessed by this wine. I think it's going to continue to get nicer and nicer. I'm not even getting any bottle bouquet out of it. I'm not getting any of the aging characteristics. It's, it's a slightly softer than it was when we put it out in 2018, 2019, when we put this wine out. Maybe a little tiny bit softer, but not a lot. It's still very, very tight. It's still really, really enraptured. And it's I, very youthful, yeah. Yeah, and I think your comment about terroir, and once again, you've got to go see it to to understand it, but you you can taste this really beautiful acidity in the wine, which is just from that climb up the mountain. And you can taste the sunshine that you get. And you can taste that almost kind of wild herbal character that you get from just the woodlands that are kind of surrounding the vineyards. And it's it's a really vibrant, beautiful expression of, of where you make wine. So thank you for sharing that. Let us know um, where people can find your wines. Typically, you should be able to go to your ultra-fine wine store. I will tell you, in most places around the country, the biggest commercial wine company in the U.S. now is a company called Total Wine. They've been a good partner. They're probably the easiest place to find it that you'll find our wines around the country. But if you have a fine wine store in your area, I would go there. Bar that, you can always call us, of course. You can call us 
You can email us. Our website is chapelet.com. There's numerous ways to get it, but you can get it from us at any time, any of the wines we've spoken about or any of the other Chapelet wines. And you can also learn about some of the other wines we make. We make 14 different wines. These are just the ones that today were on the agenda. Thank you for that. Well, I hope everybody else is out there drinking a sa- glass of the same <laughs> wine with us tonight. And if not, some other wine that they really enjoy because we, we I feel blessed. I'm so delighted that the two of you are willing to take your time to talk about our wines. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you for coming down here today and spending some time with us, Cyril. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks again to Cyril Chapelet for a wonderful episode of Wines That Matter. If you'd like to purchase any of the wines you heard today, be sure to check out chapelet.com backslash shop or enjoy them in person at the iconic Chapelet Winery in St. Helena. This episode was produced and edited for Kirkco Media and Meadowood Napa Valley by A.J. Mosley. Music by Chris Porter. Hosted by Kelly White and Sarah Bray. Be sure to click the follow button on whatever platform you're listening on so you don't miss another episode. Until then, chin chin. Chin chin.